You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. This is actually a pretty popular psalm for a pretty specific reason, so I'll show it to you. It's in the what we call the superscription before the psalm. Uh, it gives the context of when this happened, and it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's the context. Um, well, the, we have the story of David and Bathsheba, and then Nathan the prophet goes and rebukes him, and then David writes this psalm. But here's the phrase in the psalm that uh, is confusing to me. Against you and you only, speaking to God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's kind of interesting because if you have the context in mind, you have David and Bathsheba and the whole story behind that. And then when David comes time, it comes time for him to repent, he goes, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. And I'm thinking, I can think of a lot of other people that he sinned against. Why is he stopping in his repentance to just talk about, uh, I've sinned against God? Let, let me show this to you. <clears throat> let, me, let me make sure we're all on the same page with the story here. We'll back up. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, this is where the story begins. Okay, so this psalm is after David and Bathsheba, David sins, uh, Nathan the prophet comes and, and rebukes him, and then David writes this psalm. Let me go back and just remind you of the story. Um, David is the king of Israel, and they went to war, and it says it's springtime, which is when they would go to war. Um, the, the winter rains had come, so you wouldn't have to go through that, but also the crops were big, so the, um, as you're marching, you've got the, the crops that the guys can take and eat. David, however, was at home, and then it says it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. We'll find out in a minute this is Bathsheba. There have been sermons given on the innocence or guilt of Bathsheba. Now, it is possible that she was this perfectly innocent bystander, but at the same time, I have to think that women for all generations, no matter what culture you're in, know if you're bathing and there's a window, they're aware of uh, and who might be able to see in. And so some people think, well, her husband's off at war, she's put in a backup plan for herself and she's very beautiful, and so she knows David's gonna, the king is gonna go walk around on his roof. So. I don't really know. I sort of lean that way a little bit. Like, I don't think she's so innocent in all this. But at the same time, the text is really about David. And so I want to trace what he has done. Is it, whether or not it's sort of a backup plan in case her husband dies in battle is sort of irrelevant at this point. This is really on, the focus is on David. So he sees this woman, Bathsheba. And then verse 3, David sent and inquired about the woman. And one, they come back to him to say who it is. Is not this Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I think it's interesting the way that they say it too because these guys go and they see Bathsheba, find out who it is, they come back to David and they go, her name's Bathsheba. Um, <clears throat> Uriah, you know Uriah. He's out fighting in battle for you. That's her husband, David. That's another man's wife. Oh, and by the way, you also know Eliam. That's her dad, yeah, that she's his daughter, David. Like, I feel like they're coming to him to try and go, it's another man's wife, another man's daughter. Her name's Bathsheba. And David just seems to go, oh, great, thanks for the information. Go get her. And sends them to go get her. He brings her in. She ends up getting pregnant. And now there is this scandal that could be brewing because you have God's anointed king on earth 
now has impregnated this woman whose husband, Uriah, is off fighting battles for him. It's the springtime, and he's out fighting the battles. And what you'll see is the great cover-up of sin. This is you tell one lie, and then you got to tell one other lie to cover up for that lie, and then you got to tell another lie to cover up for that lie. This is the cover-up and just this perpetual nature of sin. keeps getting bigger and bigger. Watch this. So Uriah, her husband, is out at battle, and, and David says, send him home. Bring him home on leave, and then he'll go in with his wife, and then people aren't too sharp at math, so they'll just go, oh, good, Uriah got Bathsheba pregnant, and now all of a sudden David is covered from the whole thing. You can start to see the veil over David's heart get darker and darker, can't you? Because think about what David's doing. He's going to get Uriah to come home, and then this baby that they have, Uriah will live his whole life thinking it's his child and it's not. And he's going, that's a good plan. That's what he opts to do. And then it says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. David's cover-up didn't work, but he's not done yet. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to the house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from, uh, home from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab, that's the commander, and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat, to drink, to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David's plan didn't work. And then he does what every upstanding individual would do. He gets Uriah drunk and sends him down to try and like get him drunk to go and send. I was just kidding about being an upstanding individual. Getting him drunk to try and like trick him into going down and being with his wife at that point. And he still wouldn't go. And you can start to see the nobility of this guy Uriah and the depravity of David. So then David has another plan to try and fix this. He says, all right, well, I'll, we'll send a letter to Joab, who's the commander of the army, and tell him that I want Uriah to die in battle. And so the only person they have to deliver the letter is Uriah. And so Uriah takes a letter, and the letter says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting. This is to the commander, Joab. Set Uriah in the forefront of the, of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. So Uriah is so loyal to David, he obviously didn't read this letter that has his own death warrant on it as he goes back to Joab. But I love picturing the interaction with Joab and Uriah when he brings the letter and hands it to him. And Joab's like, oh, a message from the king. And he starts to read it and goes, basically, kill Uriah. And I'm sure Joab's like, what was your name again? Uriah. Uriah. Okay, I just, uh, what does it say, Joab? Oh, it's not important right now. We'll just, we'll pocket that one away. Like David now made him carry his own death warrant and because this guy is so loyal, he didn't read it. And he said, and he's telling the commander, get Uriah, put him at the front, and then when the, batting, when the battle gets fierce, pull back. And he does. And Uriah dies. Cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up. That's what's happening. Well, now a messenger, let me, I just wanted you to get the rest of the story. Now the messenger has to go back to David. He has to go back to David and say, King, we lost which is humiliating for a king. Nobody wants to be that messenger. And so Joab tells this messenger, you gotta go back and you gotta tell David that we lost. But when he gets really mad, which he's going to do, just throw in there, Uriah is dead. 
The messenger comes back, delivers the message to David. David should have been embarrassed. David should have been livid. But the messenger says, I'm supposed to tell you that Uriah also is dead. And David goes, great. David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. You see what happened? Normally it would be outrage, but because Uriah died also, this is how hard David's heart has become, that he's numbed himself to this, that he's using murder, he's using the military, he's using his kingship to cover up and literally have a guy murdered to cover up his own sin. And here's something incredibly important. Everything that David has done to this point is culturally acceptable. He's the king. He can do what he wants. He even said, oh no, Uriah is dead. What I should do, I should go get, the, what's his wife's name? Bathsheba, Bathsheba. Let me get Bathsheba and I'll take her to be my wife now. What a compassionate thing to now bring her into the palace. Cover up, cover up, cover up, cover up. All of it culturally justified. But 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Everybody around him was saying it was okay, but he could not escape the gaze of God. Now we get to the part where Nathan confronts David, and he goes in, and it's brilliant how he does it. He tells a story about a, a wealthy, powerful person and a, and a poor person that doesn't have much power, and he says, look, and he, he, he paints his whole picture, and he says, he says, I have a question for you, David. What would you do if this incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful person were to take advantage of this impoverished person with no power? And David just says, oh, you know, he, he should get off with his head. It should just be terrible for him. I can't believe anybody would ever do that. And Nathan has to say, you are the man. You're the bad guy in this story, David. You are the one who is powerful. You are the one who took advantage of poor Bathsheba, poor Uriah. It is you, David. That story was about you. And then David's got two options of response. Shh, off with his head. I'm gonna keep my cover up going. And instead, he wrote to the choir master a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And David says, have mercy on me, O God, According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see him repenting in this. And then he says that line, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Do you see why it sits wrong with me to just go, God, against you and you only have I sinned? Because I can think of some other people he's sinned against. Maybe Bathsheba. What about um, Eliam, her father? What about, you know, Uriah? Sleeping with his wife, trying to cover it up, getting him drunk, sending him out to his own death, carrying his own orders to die. What about all those along the way that he had brought in and put them in an absolutely impossible situation? Go get Bathsheba. Well, we shouldn't do this. I know we shouldn't do this. I know, but he's the king, so we're just gonna go and we're gonna get it and we're fine because the king is the one that told us to do this. And now they're involved in the cover-up as well. Maybe it's a sin against them as well. What about when they went to battle 
and they did a poor battle plan and people died unnecessarily because he wanted Uriah dead. I'm sure it wasn't just Uriah that died. There had to be some other people around them that died as a result of David trying to cover it up. Surely that's a sin against them. Maybe some of them were married or had kids. <clears throat> now their kids are fatherless and their wife's a widow and now all of a sudden it affects, maybe it's a sin against them as well. And so it's odd to me when he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Who has David sinned against? Ultimately, the Lord. That's what he's saying. All right, let me, let me try and clarify what I think is happening here. There's, there is a, a huge difference between thinking my sin is just about my interpersonal sin versus my sin is actually ultimately against a holy God. And what David does is he starts by saying, my sin is first and foremost, God, against you. This is not a, a small thing. This, this, is, this is huge. Because um, today, I would say that most of the time in our culture, we just talk about sinning against each other. I'll tell you how that plays out. We, we, we make mistakes, whatever you want to say, against each other. And all of a sudden, God is sort of out of the equation. That's one error we could make. Um, I, I would say Christians, what we do is we first and foremost say, I have sinned against Almighty God. If I sin against my wife, first and foremost, I've sinned against Almighty God and I have hurt somebody that he loves. If, if I start by saying I have sinned against God, then the people he loves that have been impacted, I will naturally be moved to show repentance towards them. David starts with God. That's where we're supposed to start as well. If, 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 if we just sin against people, we are now at the mercy of other people. Let me give you some examples. This, this is where we get our culture, a cancel culture. This is where we get the politically correct culture. That it's a, it's, a, it's a culture now that says we are the righteous ones. You have sinned against me, and therefore you need to make amends to me. Um, Ricky Gervais is, uh, you may know him, he's a, he's a British comedian. He's an atheist. But he had, to, he had this to say about um, political correctness, cancel culture, and I thought it was very insightful. He says, he says, how arrogant are you to say that you deserve to go through life with no one ever saying anything that you don't agree with or like? And here's what he says. I want people to stop saying that joke's offensive. I want them to start saying I found it offensive because that's all it is. Did you catch the difference? One is, this kind of bothered me personally, one is, uh, hey, I am the source of truth, and I'm telling you, that joke is inherently offensive, and you shouldn't do it. And this is where we are today. I can't read everything he said about this, but I can read a little more. <laughs> he, says, uh, you're just he says, you're just telling me how you feel about it. There's nothing intrinsically offensive about this joke. It's trying to make I'm offended sound important. He says, it's no different than saying I've got a pain in my leg. He says, I believe you, but it has nothing to do with me. Well, but you shouldn't hurt people's feelings. Well, you can if their feelings are wrong, and if you don't like the facts, change the feelings. So he, he actually goes into it, and I think in a very subtle way, like I want to tell this atheist, like, oh man, do you know what you're doing is you're saying there needs to be some kind of source, and it shouldn't just be the source of truth, is, is, is each individual person gets to declare for society what is offensive and what is not. And that's one of the things, if, if, if we don't realize we've sinned against God and all we do is we sin against each other, you can see how it completely shapes 
culture. It's a, it's a freeing thing, actually, to know that we've sinned against God. I'm not at the mercy of just cultural norms or whichever crowd I'm talking to, and I walked in this room, and oh, they're more sensitive about this, and they're more sensitive. Like, we, we don't have to live at that mercy. We live in the mercies of God. Everything David did was culturally fine up to this point. Like, I just picture... I just picture if he were to ever grab those subjects that went and got Bathsheba and he were to go, hey guys, come here, I've been, been really thinking about it. Nathan came and talked to me and I'm feeling really convicted about this and whew, I put you in a bad spot and I, I, the king, would just ask that you forgive me. They would have gone, you're the king. We're your subjects. You don't need to ask forgiveness of us ever. You speak and we do. That's the way it works. When we remember that we've sinned against God, it's one of the ways that God keeps order in the world as opposed to just saying um, it's only sin if I've really sinned against another human being, like if they take offense to it. Because then you get someone who, who, um, uh, you, you know, who, who, who is pretty thick-skinned, and so you do something against them, and they go, you know what, don't even worry about it. And you go, oh, I guess it's not a big deal. Or what happens a lot of the times, you get someone who is a terrible forgiver, and now all of a sudden, you, if you've just sinned against them, they can hold it over your head for the rest of their life. Our sin is against God. It really is less important about the person's reaction and response and my, my relationship here. First, it's a relationship here. So I'll give, you, I'll give you some examples. I spent way too much time this week looking at um, Stockholm Syndrome. You know what that is? It's where somebody kidnaps somebody and then the captor starts to develop feelings of affection for the person that has kidnapped them. Have you seen this? All right, go Google it. It's fascinating. Um, and it's terrifying, but it's also fascinating. And, and what happens is, like, say this, this man kidnaps this woman, and then her, what happens is her, there's a lot of reasons, but her expectation of what her life, instead of being this, is now this. And so then what happens is she starts to just get okay with this. This is kind of the best I'm going to get. And then starts realizing if this captor guy, like, bolts or throws me out in the streets, I've got nothing. And so she almost becomes grateful to him for just giving her this. It's just a, it's a mental thing. It's a mental defense that our minds do. And so she can actually start to develop feelings of affection and attraction and love for the person that's enslaved her. And if all that matters about sin is the sin between the two of them, then what he is doing is perfectly fine because if you asked her, she would say she's fine with it. It is a sin against Almighty God, first and foremost. I think of um, pastors that are leading congregations that have just basically left the, left the Bible, left the gospel. And it would be easy for them to go, but look, people are still coming. People are, people are showing up. They seem to be okay with it. Our little world, we're all okay with it. They're putting money in the plate, and they're playing good songs on Sunday, and they're doing all that. And if it's just an interpersonal thing, you can have a church that is proclaiming heresy, and just find people that are okay with that. But it's ultimately a sin against God. It breaks my heart when I see pictures of like, or these videos, um, like third world countries, and you see these little boys that are like being given weapons at a very young age to be trained to be in the army, and it breaks my heart. But they always, the propaganda is they show the images of the boys like playing with the weapons and things and like laughing. And if you were to go ask them, that's the only life they know, they'd probably go, yeah, it's, it's fine. And a Christian can go, has nothing to do with whether or not you think it's right or wrong. This is a sin against Almighty God. You see the difference? You see, like, you see why this matters so much? When I first see 
this is a sin against God, then it starts to trickle down to say, who are the people that God loves that I've upset, and what do I need to do to make it right? It's a different way of, of coming at it. So I, I think of it like this. Let me give you an illustration. Let's take a, um, let's take a stay-at-home mom who has young children, and dad is heading out to work. And right before he heads out to work, he says something that just stings her and shows lack of appreciation, whatever it might be, and it just stings her, and she is dwelling on it all day long. She basically has one of two options. One is to be at home and to stew. And then that way, when he comes home later, and she might be there making dinner, and he comes up, and he's forgotten about it, he comes up and goes to give her a kiss on the cheek, he goes, she goes, kind of does one of those. Kind of puts him in the doghouse for a little bit. It's an option. Here's the other option. Imagine if uh, he walks out and she starts saying, Heavenly Father, would you convict his heart of what he's done and how it's hurt me? And God, it's not just about me and him, it's about you and him. And so would you help him see that he has hurt your beloved daughter? Amen. Now all of a sudden, the prayer is God, get him right with you because if he gets right with you, the overflow will be kindness and repentance towards me as well. That's why this mattered. I, I just said it like this. Um, before this bothered me, this bothered God. Whatever somebody does that I take as a sin and an offense against me, God loves me and so if it really is something that's in sin, it bothered God first because God's looking at me and loves me. And if I offend somebody else or if I hurt somebody else, it bothers God because they are his son, they are his daughter. But I'd say even a better prayer for that wife, because this is really about David's personal repentance, I'd say a better prayer for that wife would be something like this. God, I know I'm not perfect. Convict him where he's wrong and convict me where I'm wrong. That's the way to pray. God, I am not perfect at all. Listen, if, if my only sin is against another human being, I can justify almost any sin because you've got it too. But I can't against a holy God. This idea of I've sinned first and foremost against God sounds like really, really bad news. Like, great. I can't even keep up with my spouse or my friend, and now you're saying I've got to keep up with a holy God. No way. And I was in my office this morning. I was, just, I was just in tears thinking about the beauty of this. Here's what you need to know. Do you know that God loves to forgive? That God loves to restore people after they repent? God loves to forgive and God loves to restore. And I look and I just go, really, after all David did, I mean, think about cover up, cover up, cover up. Think about being the king. Think about being God's anointed. And there he is. And, and all the ripple effects we don't even know about. And he has the audacity to sit before God and say, I'm sorry, and repent before almighty God. You think God's going to put him in the doghouse for a little bit? God loves to hear his people repent. He loves to forgive. He loves to restore his people. Let me just read this over you, the rest of what David says. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. See what he's saying? He is going to God with the expectation that the repentant heart will receive the mercies of God. 
Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's saying, restore me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and upholding me, uphold in with me a willing, I'm sorry, uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. Meaning, my heart was wrong with you and so all my sacrifices, you were going, "Uh uh-uh. You were going through the motions but I don't have your heart. And look at what he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bulls will be offered on your altar. God is ready to extend his mercy. He loves to forgive and David knows that. So even as bad as David was, he stands before God and says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. But I also said he he delights to restore. I don't know if you know kind of the end of the story here. Um, Tragically, the child that Bathsheba was pregnant with um, died and then they had another child. And do you know the name of that child ended up being King Solomon. From David and Bathsheba came Solomon. But it's even better than that. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, he's going through the genealogy of Jesus. It's the part that we all skip over. Matthew 1, 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. And then you go down about 10 verses, and who comes from this line? It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Did you know that that's the lineage of Jesus Christ? It's David, Bathsheba, Solomon, on down to the Lord Jesus Christ. If God can take David and all his sin and show his mercy to him and forgive him, he can do it to you and me as well. He loves when we turn to him. I remember, I I don't remember all the details. My mom was in town, I should have asked her. I was a kid, I bet I was elementary, something like that, and I don't even remember what I did, but I did something, and the moms got in cahoots, and they were basically trying to teach me how to say I'm sorry, and um, I did not want to do it. I would walk down the street, I would go play at my friend's house, and I would leave, and the mom would say, is there anything you need to say to me before you go? And I was supposed to say, I'm very sorry for whatever I did, I don't even remember, I'm very sorry. And I would go, no ma'am. And I would turn and I would sort of shuffle out. And then I'd go down to my my buddy's house again, and she'd go, okay, well have a great day, is there anything you need to tell me before you go? And I would say, no ma'am, and I would turn and I would walk out. And then finally one day, she says, is there anything you need to tell me before I go? And I thought, I'm gonna do it this time. I, I, really, I was probably elementary or something, I don't know. I was like, I'm gonna do it this time. And I looked at her, right as I look at her, I see like her husband, the dad, like walk in this room over here, and I look at her and I go, I'm very, very sorry. And you know what happened? She goes, 
all right. The dad runs in and grabs me and picks me up and starts like twirling around with me in the little foyer right there. And I was going, what is happening right now? And the mom is going, I'm going to go call your mom and tell her what you said. She's going to be so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. And that's the exact thing that came to mind. That image came to mind. When we go before God and we go, I am sorry, I blew it again. I have sinned before I've sinned against her or him or them. I have sinned ultimately against you. There is a God that rejoices in our repentance and sweeps us up and wraps our, 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 his arms around us and can restore us, even us. If he can do that with David, he can do that with us. Mm -hmm.